central discipling unit of the people of God. That strong marriages will raise strong kids. Strong marriages and strong kids will build strong community. And a strong community will follow hard after Jesus. Now, I know what some of you are saying right now. Those of you who are thinking about getting married, you're like, okay, got it. Those of you who've been married, you say, maybe I didn't do such a good job in this. Now, listen, it's always a good time to go back and refortify the foundation of your family. God cares about families and wants them to thrive. Pastor Daniel shares that you can see God's desire to strengthen families in some of the Old Testament laws that you'll study today. You'll discover that God wants families to be healthy and connected because they're the building blocks of communities. While you may feel like you failed in this area, Pastor Daniel reminds you that it's never too late to reinforce your family's foundations. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in Deuteronomy chapter 24. As he continues his message, more random laws. We move into verse 5. Look at what it says. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife, whom he has taken. Now, this is a law for newlyweds. What it means is that when you get newly married, guess what? You get a year's vacation. Really, actually, it's not a year's vacation. It's a new full-time job, trying to bring happiness to your wife. That's what it says. And I'm here to tell you, that's some hard work, amen? No, I'm just kidding. Well, it is hard work. It's good work. When you start thinking about this, you start realizing that God cares about marriage. So in some ways, it's like God says, I don't want you to get divorced, and I don't want you to wife swap, but when you get married, I want you to lay a good foundation. And that's one of the things that I always like to tell young couples who are getting married. I always say, listen, when you get married, lay a strong foundation. Because you end up building your entire marriage on the foundation that is laid in your pre-marriage and your premarital time and in those first years of marriage. How do you communicate? Do you understand each other? Do you understand what makes each other tick and ticks each other off? You know, these are all very important pieces of information in the course of marriage. And so God's design is, listen, I don't want you to go to war. Why? Because you might get dead and that wouldn't help your wife, you know? And I don't want you to get yourself involved in any kind of significant business or be charged with business. Why? Because your one focus is to lay a good foundation. Now, why would God place a priority on the first year of marriage above war or business. Why? Because God knows that family is the central discipling unit of the people of God. That strong marriages will raise strong kids. Strong marriages and strong kids will build strong community. And a strong community will follow hard after Jesus. Now, I know what some of you are saying right now. Those of you who are thinking about getting married, you're like, okay, got it. Those of you who've been married, you say, maybe I didn't do such a good job in this. Now, listen. It's always a good time to go back and refortify the foundation of your family. There's never not a good time to stop, take a step back, and say, I'm going to invest again 
in working on my family and my marriage. For those of you who are husbands here today, let me speak to the husbands as a husband. What I have learned is that any investment I choose to make in my bride is always welcome. Every time I grab her hand and say, sweetie, let's pray, she never says, well, I don't want to pray with you. She says, oh, yeah, okay. Every time I want to talk about Jesus, when I say, hey, let's read a book about marriage, she gets all in love. It's an amazing thing. I don't even have to read the book with her. I just have to bring it up. Like, hey, let's read that book about marriage. And she gets all, like, I'm the most handsome guy she ever saw in her life. There's a, people joke that a happy wife equals a happy life. And in some ways, this verse lends itself to that. Because, I mean, the Bible also says, and to look at both sides of the coin, the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 27, 15 a continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. That's what it says. Proverbs 21.9, better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. Proverbs 21.19. But here's the thing. If you take those verses and you link them to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter five, when a husband loves his wife, he actually loves himself because you're one flesh. So husbands, make that investment in your wife. Now, I know what's going on. Some of you guys right now are like, darn, I wish I didn't come to church tonight. (laughs) Because your wife's sitting there, she's kind of like tapping her foot, you know, just being like, I I know you're here in Fisco right now. But here's the deal for you guys, because I know some of us are like, so what do I do? If you don't know what to do, ask your wife what she wants you to do. I'm not kidding. If you just say to her, hey, listen, so Fusco was talking to us about making an investment and relaying the foundation of our marriage and refortifying our marriage. What do you think we need to do? I'm here to tell you your wife will already have the prescription. Because she'll say, well, this is what my heart has always wanted. My heart has always wanted you to pray with me. My heart has always wanted you to make a commitment to grow together. And yeah, I really like to go to marriage ministry when it happens. And, you know, I really would like to serve the Lord. And, you know, maybe we should do this thing and that thing. So I think it's important that we always make the effort to relay the foundations. And if maybe you weren't in this place, you know, that you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to relay the foundation. Now, for those of you who are single right now and you're saying, okay, Fusco, move on, I'm bored, this is what I'm going to say. You want to hear this because if you desire a spouse one day, you want to know this stuff before you get there so it'll pop in your head that you need to lay a strong foundation and make sure you lay a good, strong foundation, right? If you're like, well, I'm never going to get married, forget that, then you need to pray for everybody who's trying to lay a strong foundation because it's hard to do. Because you have two personalities and two feelings and two histories and two families of origin who are coming together. But it's something that God cares deeply about. So I think it's beautiful. Make sure that we lay great foundations. Now, in verse 6, we get another one. No man shall take the lower or the upper millstone in pledge, for he takes one's living in pledge. Now, a millstone is what ground the grain, which was a basic life sustenance. So you have to think, like, right now, if you want some bread, you just go to the store and you pick up your favorite loaf of bread, or you go to your favorite bakery or whatever, you just get some bread, right? But back in the day, this was long before we had Safeway and Fred Meyers and Costco and gluten-free bread and all this stuff. You had to 
pick the grain and you had to grind it down. You had to separate the wheat from the chaff and then you had to process it and bake it. And so the device that was used was a millstone. And the millstone, it was both an upper and a lower millstone. They were ground together. And really what it's saying here is that if a plant was a deposit, a down payment, let's say you want to go and you want to mow your field, right? You go and you rent and you give a deposit, right? In some ways, people would use their millstone as a deposit. But the Lord is saying, no, you can't use it. Why? Because in receiving it as a pledge, you actually deprive somebody of their ability to have daily bread, the basic sustenance of life. So really what this principle teaches us is that in the deposits that we make for things, as people who are lending, we should never put somebody in a vulnerable situation as we ask them for leverage for whatever they're borrowing from us. Does that make sense? So the way that we would want to apply this to our lives is that if you, maybe you have something that somebody needs help with and you want to loan it to them, but you want something kind of as collateral deposit, make sure you're not depriving them of their sustenance. Now, I think one of the ways that this plays out today is we do live in what many sociologists and economists, people who do the economy, we do live in a day and age of what you can call a predatory economy, which the economy is actually driven by causing people who are disadvantaged further disadvantage by the way that we deal with business. Like if you've ever been to a check cashing place. Now, I've never gotten my check cashed at a check cashing place, but when you go, because I was reading about this, so I went into a check cashing place. You'll only find check casting places in places that have higher percentages of lower income people. And when you go on in there, they charge exorbitant charges in order to cash your check because they realize you don't have a bank account and there is some credit risk for the person who's cashing the check. But they charge 30, 40, 50% just to cash your check. That's a predatory economy. You're taking someone who's impoverished and you're using their poverty against them to keep them oppressed. And that is something that is completely distinct from the purposes and plans of God. So it's amazing, though, when you see this, that there are, you know, even the same thing like when you, if you want to buy a house. Now, I get there's credit risks and all these things, and, and a lender takes risk, but the higher, exorbitantly higher interest rates and fees that they pay for people who have lower incomes, again, it's speaking into this principle. Now, you might say, well, so, Pastor Daniel, I can't fix the economic system. Well, maybe you can See, it's easy to throw our hands in the air, and it's much more Jesus-like to say, well, Lord, is there something I can do? Is there a way that I can engage in this to help people on the margins, the people who are the most vulnerable? Can I help them blossom? Is there something that I can do? Because it's really easy to say, well, I have no control over that stuff, but maybe we do. Something to think about. But it's really important Don't deprive somebody of their livelihood, their ability to have the basic sustenances of life as you're trying to help them. Now, in verse 7, notice we get next. If a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then that kidnapper shall die and you shall put away the evil from among you. So now we find that the punishment for kidnapping somebody is the death penalty. Now, if you want to marry this to another set of scripture, if you look at Exodus chapter 21, we find that all sorts of kidnapping according to the law of God is punishable by death. Now, the reason I think that this is really important because it's very common in the day and age we live in for people to say, I can't believe the Bible because the Bible condones slavery. 
And you have to realize, when you read about slavery in the Bible, we think about slavery through the lens of Western or European enslavement of people on the continent of Africa, which was a total atrocity, something that went on for a really long time, and it was something that was actually abolished by Christians. You know, William Wilberforce in England and the people who fought for the abolishment of it, you know, they were all rock-solid believers. You might say, well, some of the believers also condone slavery, and you're right. But it was because they were misreading their Bibles. See, slavery in the Bible was most often, we would call it having a job. When somebody, because of their business dealings or something would go on and they couldn't pay their bills, they would link themselves to a wealthy landover and they would work for them to be able to pay down their debt. And a lot of ways, like if you have a job that you don't love, but you do it because it pays your rent or your mortgage and your food bill and you need all that stuff, according to the Bible, that's the way slavery functioned. It's not kidnapping someone, removing them, taking away all their rights and subjugating them. Because if you read Exodus 21 and you read this verse right here, what you realize is that if you do that, that is a capital crime in God's economy. Why? Because it's a life for a life. It's a life for a life. And when we act in such a way by kidnapping somebody, mistreating them or whatever, we are violating God's law. And I think it's also important. We do live in a day and age where it'd be great to say that slavery didn't exist, but the statistics tell us sex slavery is alive and well. Portland is one of the hub cities for it. It's amazing that there is slavery going on in our own community right now. I'm grateful for many of you who are involved in the eradication of of sex slavery. Now, we always say the best way to eradicate sexual slavery is for a revival of the gospel. Because when God revives hearts, men or women who would seek to hurt somebody, either for sex or to use their bodies to make the money, that changes. See, there would be no sex slavery if men wouldn't pay for sex. And that's a heart problem. The fact that men would do it, that's a heart problem. The fact that men would pay for internet pornography, all these things. The supply and demand creates the problem. And Jesus wants to eradicate the problem. And God wants us to work to make sure that nobody is ever kidnapped, taken against their will. And you can read the stories about what they're doing in developing countries where people are going and they're finding young people and they're saying, listen, we're going to take you to the city. We're going to give you a great job. And because there's so much poverty, the parents just send them. And then they put them in horrible conditions. They addict them to drugs. And then they pimp these girls and guys out. It's horrible. And it's going on today. Again, when you read this stuff, it makes you think, Lord, how can I be a part of the change? How can I step into not just being a passive observer of this, but Lord, how can I engage myself in the world that we live in to seek making the things that are broken unbroken? Because that's exactly what Jesus has done. And I believe that Jesus will raise up many of us to engage in all these different areas where there is effective change that is needed. Now, don't miss the fact also that Deuteronomy 24, verse 7 also is pointing to what happened to Joseph at the hands of his brothers in Genesis chapter 37, where kidnapping often was to sell somebody into slavery, which is exactly what Joseph's brothers did to him. So those things link together. Now, in verses 8 and 9, it says, Take heed in an outbreak of leprosy, 
that you carefully observe and do according to all that the priests of Levites shall teach you, just as I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt. So now we have these skin disease laws. Now, if you want to go back, I taught on this in Leviticus 13 and 14. And I made the point there that most scholars would tell you that where we see leprosy in the Bible, it's often about skin diseases, a whole plethora of skin diseases, which leprosy was one of them. Now, remember, there was very elaborate testing, separation, and when someone was healed, re-inclusion into the community. Why? Because the law of Moses was also a health code. In the same way, when someone's got a skin rash, right? Normally they'll put medicine on it or they'll cover it up or they'll wear long sleeve shirts. Why? So that it doesn't spread. Now, in a lot of ways, the way that skin ailments were dealt with in the Bible is the same way. God actually cares that we be healthy and he doesn't want communicable diseases to be running forth through the children of Israel without any recourse. And so that's why there was this separation. The priests were involved in helping to diagnose. And when somebody was healthy again, they were readmitted into the people. And you can read all of this in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14. Now, there is this reminder here because it says, remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt. And that comes right out of Numbers chapter 12. Remember, Miriam led her brother Aaron in rebellion against Moses, and the Lord struck Miriam with leprosy for a season. And so it's just an important reminder that if God would deal with Miriam in such a way that they need to be very, very careful to make sure that everybody stays safe. So skin diseases. Now we move on. Verse 10, when you lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to get his pledge. You shall stand outside and the man to whom you lend shall bring the pledge out to you. Verse 12, and if the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight. You shall in any case return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down that he may sleep in his own garment and bless you and it shall be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. Now, again, now we have speaking of pledges, how we do business. And the idea here is really when somebody wants to grant a loan, whatever is used for collateral, you need to observe the dignity of the borrower. So like the idea is if somebody was going to lend something, you just can't go into their house and take whatever you want. You need to let them go into their own house and bring out whatever they want to use as collateral. Because the idea was that even though somebody needed a loan, they still had inherent dignity because they were created in the image and likeness of God. And so one of the points of this is that God wants to make sure that no matter where somebody is at, we always deal with them in a way that has the dignity that is rightful for an image bearer of God, no matter how marred that image may seem. And I think for us, it really speaks to us always remembering that every person we come in contact with is part of the human family. No human is meant to be seen as disposable. No one is meant to be seen as undignified because each person was created in the image and likeness of God and bears the image of God, even though that image is a little warped by sin, but redeemable by Jesus. Does that make sense? 
So make sure that as followers of Jesus, we always hold people in the esteem that they should be as created beings of our most high God, even if they don't realize that God is their creator and that they do bear his image. And so you have the dignity because oftentimes when somebody needs to borrow money, there is a feeling of shame. God doesn't want people to feel shame when they need help. And so the dignity of the borrower is well-preserved. In the same way, if someone is poor, it says you shall not keep his pledge overnight. And so this really speaks about the idea of using their cloak, which was their outer garment, which was their blanket as well. And so for somebody who is poor, the only thing that they could use as collateral was this, this cloak, which was their outer garment, and also doubled as their sleeping blanket. And so if they gave it to you during the day, you had to give it back to them at night. Why? Again, because God loves people. And God doesn't want people to be exploited, and God doesn't want people to get hurt. And I love this because it says, you shall in any case, verse 13, return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down. Notice that he may sleep in his own garment and what? And bless you. And it shall be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. See, one of the ways the righteousness of Jesus plays out in our lives as we follow these prescriptions, as we say, Lord, we see the principle here and we're gonna apply it to our lives, even though it puts maybe the person who is lending at a seeming place of risk, because the person who is vulnerable blesses you, God says, it says, it's like righteousness. Their praise of your blessing and your love for them, it brings glory to God. And that's what God wants. And that's why Christian ethics are so important. That's why Jesus could say, you want to know what it's all about? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And what? And love your neighbor as yourself. See, all of this teaching of scriptures is you live upward, and you give God your whole heart, and you love God. You live vertically, right? You live upward, and then you live inward. Because of God's love for you, you see yourself properly, and then you send that love outward into the world. When was the last time you looked at your life and said, how does my life line up with loving God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving my neighbor as myself? How does my witness in the world, am I making sure that I'm letting people feel dignified, that I'm protecting people who are vulnerable. It's very, very important here. Now, in verses 14 and 15, we get the same idea, but now it's about the way you care for your employees. So notice, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and it be a sin to you. Now, really the idea here is, again, in a culture before there was pantries and freezers and refrigerators and, you know, you got to pay your bill and all this stuff, everything was very transactional and your daily needs needed to be provided every single day. And one of the ways a landowner or a wealthy businessman could oppress people who work for them is by withholding wages. The Bible says that we should love God with everything we are and then love people as we love ourselves. This is a huge calling. Today, Pastor Daniel asked you to think about how you're doing in this area. As you learn more about God's heart and studying the laws he gave the Israelites, you are challenged to consider if your life reflects God's priorities. 
Pastor Daniel reminded you that it all starts with the upward loving of God. Let him be the foundation for everything you are, say, and do. Everyone needs a little encouragement to get through their day, and we have a way to provide that for you. Pastor Daniel has some excellent advice, truth, and love to share in his two-minute messages available on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just go to JesusIsRealRadio.com and click on the social media links to find them. You won't be disappointed, and your day just might get a little brighter. We hope you tune in again next time as Pastor Daniel will continue in this Blueprint series. You'll continue to unpack some more of the laws God gave His people to help guide them through life. Next time, you'll take a look at what God said about personal responsibility, and you'll learn that each of us has to deal with the consequences of our own choices. Well, that's all the time we have for today's broadcast. On behalf of Pastor Daniel and the entire production team, we invite you to join us again for the next edition of Jesus Is Real Radio.